I want to tell you an Ellis Marsalis story real quick. All righty. I was a fifth grader and my mom was an English teacher in the Oak Ridge school system in East Tennessee. And she snuck me into this junior high master class Ellis was teaching. So he says at the beginning, who here plays piano? Like a fool, I, I throw my hand in the air. Hmm. <laughs> he says, come on down, young man. So I come down. He puts some sheet music on the piano, satin doll. He says, play satin doll. I said, okay. He takes the sheet music off the stand. And he says, okay, play what you just played one step up. Now, I, I don't know what a step is. Right. I have no idea what that means. So I'm staring into the abyss of the music desk. I got nothing. He puts a heavy hand on my shoulder, says, have a seat, young man. <laughs> so that was a great experience for me because it showed me, hey, it's fine to know what you know, right? But you better know what you don't know and you better get on it. Right. Yep, that's him. So that's what I learned from that master. Yeah, that's him. I expect he passed that along to you, along with many other lessons as well. Yeah, he didn't really give us music lessons. It was more like life lessons. And, uh, well, it was, it was life lessons. And that really did help the music, ultimately. Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, director of content at Steinway & Sons and editor-in-chief of the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. Today I'm speaking with instrumentalist, composer, band leader, educator, and NEA jazz master, Branford Marsalis. Marsalis joins us today to discuss his Emmy-nominated score for the History Channel's documentary, Tulsa Burning, the 1921 Race Massacre. You've worn a lot of hats. You are a performer. You're an instrumentalist. You're a band leader. You're a composer. What we're here to talk about today is the music you wrote for a documentary film called Tulsa Burning. And this is a tough topic. Right. This is a tough documentary. I watched it yesterday. Perhaps you could tell our listeners what Tulsa Burning is about. What it's ultimately about is, uh, I guess you could call it the you could call it the Southern social compact, but it was really a, a social compact that was kind of created at the at the founding of our country, where the tacit understanding was is that uh, no matter how low the station of a white man might be, emphasis on man. Yes, sir. There were always a group of people, and it wasn't just blacks, blacks, Indians, uh, Jews at some point, Irishmen, there would always be a group of people who were beneath you. So no matter how bad it was for you, 
you didn't have to worry about being at the bottom. And then uh, once the Civil War ended, a lot of the myths that were used as justifications for, for slavery, the African man's inability to process information, naturally a hard worker, but has to be told what to do, childlike, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Once the, uh, the former slaves started to move into the Oklahoma territories where they were free of the, the rules of subjugation and started to thrive, it created a seething tension between them and the white men who were just down the road, essentially. And a lot of the white men just wanted a spark. They just needed something to vent their fury. It's like January 6th on steroids, really. I mean, and it, it wasn't the only place that it happened. I mean, it, there were so many race uprisings in Chicago and New Orleans and other places that the summer of 1919 was called the Red Summer. Mm. And Tulsa was just one of those, one of those stories, you know, one of those many stories. I mean, there was one in Wilmington in 1890 that centered around the same reality. So you had a situation where hundreds of blacks were killed and the, and the government, this is the most important part of the social compact that the government will be complicit or at least turned a blind eye to the goings on. So uh, the official tally was like 33 people were killed by persons unknown, which is the, that's the, the best part, persons unknown. Uh, in a small town like Tulsa in 1920, everybody knew who did what. We know, we know who you were. Yeah. So, so it was a story that repeated itself all over the country at various times. And as it is often the case in human existence, emphasis on human, not on a particular race, those who commit the deeds then try to erase the misdeeds through folklore and silence. Mm -hmm. And that this is why a lot of people are only hearing about Tulsa for the first time. And a lot of people don't know about Wilmington and don't know about Chicago and don't know about New Orleans and don't really know anything about the Japanese internment camps or the treatment of the Irish at the turn of the century when they arrived. In, in New York Harbor. I mean, we just sweep these things under the rug because they interfere with our narratives about ourselves. You know, you mentioned it there, but it shocked me when I saw the documentary because I didn't know this part was that you basically had a mob that was deputized. Yeah. And for some reason, I don't know why I continue to be shocked about past events in this nation, but that, that, that did shock me that this was all done under ad hoc rule of law. Right. And you summarized it well, too. It's, it, it harkens back to William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. Mm -hmm. But I think Reverend Robert Turner puts it best in the documentary when he pithily says, Black people, a generation out of slavery, built a Mecca for themselves. And how did their government respond to them? They burned it to the ground. Yeah. How did you decide where to even start when approaching the music, the scoring for Tulsa Burning? I was forced to read Shakespeare in high school. And uh, I used to say, this is stupid. And then when I was of a mature age, that I could actually understand the words, which was, I remembered very well in my 30s. I was 32 years old. 
and started to reread Shakespeare because I went to a performance of Richard III and I couldn't understand the language at all. And I felt that the problem was me, not the play. I went against the American belief that if I don't understand something, it's the problem of the other person. And once I started to read it, I remember telling my dad to say, I started reading Shakespeare again in high school. I said it was stupid. And I was right because high school kids are way too stupid to read this and know what the hell is going on. They should have never allowed us to read it back then. <laughs> but ultimately, when you start reading Richard III and Julius Caesar and The Tempest, Midsummer's Night Dream, King Lear, the themes, we, we fall in love with the words. English teachers fall in love with the words and the syntax. But ultimately, they're just stories, and they're stories of revenge or uh, love or love lost or betrayal or anger. And Shakespeare was able to very brilliantly tie all of these disparate ideas into a flashpoint. And Tulsa is no different than Shakespeare. One of the funny ironies of the situation is uh, we signed the, uh, the agreement with the uh, production company under the understanding that there would be a hard deadline in late January. But in late January, I had still not seen the film. But I had these musicians whom I had hired, and there was no guarantee that they would be available when I tried to redo this. This was a similar thing that happened in Ma Rainey. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, when I was writing the music for that film and production, got pushed back. And they're so used to working with studio musicians. I said, these guys are really highly specialized. And of course, three or four of the crucial ones weren't available when we finally get a, had a chance to do it. And we made do. So I decided to record a lot of the music that I had written based on my understanding of the story, Aha. which really pissed off the director. Not like, you know, not like a, a movie anger, but, but he, we're friends. But he was <laughs> like, man, how could you do this? I said, because I know the story. Yeah. I know that there is a entrepreneurship, black entrepreneurship, which brings happiness and confidence and joy. So I wrote happy, happy, confidence and joy. And then after the riot, it's death and destruction. So there's anguish. And there's, you know, so I wrote this piece called Aftermath. And he says, but what about the other stuff? Well, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't write to that. <laughs> but when we finally see the other things, I'll write. But I had to finish this session. I had to get this done with the people that were there was my first time writing for string quartet and I wanted to see if it actually worked. And if it didn't work, then I had that this gave me enough time to cover myself to get something else done. Where if I waited for the, the deadline deadline, I was kind of tied to it. So it worked out really well. And the music from the session from the site unseen session is featured very prominently in the, in the, in the documentary, which is, which is kind of cool. So you had nailed those themes, right? You were proved correct. Well, it was in my late 20s the first time I decided that the power in music was how it sounded, not what it was. What do you mean by that? 
if you if you play a song, particularly a song without lyrics, because lyrics are a different animal entirely. But if you play a song, if you play an adagio movement, and people hear it and they cry, and you ask them why they were crying, they're never going to say, well, when the music got to this particular point, and then he played a G minus 7 sharp 9 flat 13 chord, and just the <laughs> sheer brilliance and the logic of that. See, no, it's just, I have no idea. Just the sound of it, it brought me to another place. That's the power of music. But as kids and growing up, you're learning all of these scales and patterns and chord structures. So for us, that's what the music is. The way you resolve that French six chord really gave me goosebumps. Right, exactly. You know, you could, you could have used the Neapolitan, but you didn't. And why was that? And, you know, because I, I'm a social person, I grew up in a social city and I have a lot of normal friends. I started realizing that my relationship with music was very different than theirs. And it was my job to communicate to them, to take what I know and to distill it down to a language that they can understand. And in my late 20s was when I first started thinking about the idea of using sound to create an emotional effect. And it took a decade or so before it could actually show up in, in the music. But if you don't identify a problem or if you don't think of an idea, then you'll never get there at all. So this was perfect for me because I've been thinking about this for 35 years, about this idea of writing music to create sounds that have an emotional effect. So I was pretty sure they would be effective in certain, in certain scenes, yeah. And there's a lot of lexicons that you have in your musical gumbo. I'll just call it the, the death and destruction theme recalled for me Arvo Pert. Right. The fratris of the pizzicato and the piano and the right. tintinabulation together. Then you have, there's contemporary American sounds in there. And there's, let's call it a, a throwback jazz lexicon. You have the orchestration of the string quartet, which is, of course, that conjures up a certain tradition for us right. that's inescapable. And you mix all this together. And it sounds to me like from what you just said that you did this by establishing, okay, here are the themes that are going to come up here. And then I would presume after watching some additional themes that you had to interpolate. Yeah, well, Marco was really clear about what he wanted. Marco Williams, not necessarily in, in music terms, but just it was more like, I don't remember the judge's name, but there was a judge in New York who was judging a, one of the early pornography cases in the 50s, I think. And then someone said to the judge, well, what's your definition of pornography? He says, I can't tell you a definition, but I certainly no, know when it I when see I it. see it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so he knew what he wanted sonically. Like He couldn't give me articulated points or tell me, use strings or use this. So it was up to me to create a sonic template, and he would say yes or he would say no. 
So for the fight scenes, I mean, you know, I'd spend so much time listening to Russian music, mostly Prokofiev, uh, Stravinsky, and Shostakovich, and Tchaikovsky. I was actually in St. Louis playing at this jazz club called, uh, it's still there. I can't remember the name of it. But we had a day off in the St. Louis Symphony was playing a kid's concert. So I, I know one of the violinists and he snuck me into the kid's concert and they were playing the second movement of the seventh. And it was just like something that struck me that what I tell my students now is that music needs an engine. In popular music, the engine is kind of like the combination of the bass and the, the backbeat with the drummer. But in classical music, you have to find find out where the engine is. And what Beethoven masterfully decided to do was use the viola to create the motion, which is, I think, something he, he borrowed from Haydn, even though Haydn didn't do it in the same way that he did it. I mean, Beethoven started out, he, his early works did sound a lot like Haydn's music. And I could so clearly hear that this viola driving everything else that was going on. So when I started writing this music for the riot scenes, for the scenes where they were about to be attacked, it started out, it, it's very minimalist. It starts out with that drone, boom, boom, which is, you know, violent scene music 101. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom, boom. And then I heard this violin, I mean, viola, which is, a, it's, I think it's a Shostakovich theft but not specific it's one of those things where i'm not stealing directly from him but it's something that sounds like he would write because i spent so much time listening to to a lot of his string quartets yeah that contaminated yeah well but thankfully yes yeah <laughs> so the music just kind of grew out of those things and when i sent it he was like wow this is exactly what this needed this is great now i need more <laughs> so what started out to be a two-week project became a five-week project with him every day saying, I need more. I need more. What about this? What about that? I created a lot of it on, on uh, digitally because uh, a budget for it using real instruments would have been way beyond the budget that a documentary should allow. So uh, that's one of the reasons I really wanted to write for String Quartet because I did want to have live musicians. Yeah, you knew you could get four players for sure. I could get four players and I could get a small jazz group of six and maybe stretch it out to 10 on one particular cue. <laughs> but uh, I really wanted to have that. I wanted to have that sound, not just uh, because the jazz stuff, you, you really can't do it digitally, even though there's one particular song in there, which is like a jazzy piano trio sound that he really, really wanted. Mm -hmm. And I sat there and couldn't believe that I could make it sound almost, you know, half as decent. I was like, I can't believe this. And I would send it to friends of mine who who are musicians. Say, what do you think about this? Is a great tune. Who's playing? I'm like, the computer. They're like, no way. <laughs> no way. I said, I can't believe it either. So that worked. The ideas just kept, yeah, I was down in the basement writing and writing and writing day after day. And it was great to be doing something because I was, we were at the tail end of the pandemic. So it was, I was just happy to be doing something. Or at least the tail end of pandemic part one. Yeah, right. The <laughs> tail end of the very first part, yeah, of the alpha version of the pandemic for us. Spending so much time uh, so close to this material, which is, it's just brutal. Let's be honest. Right. There's real brutality right. being documented here in detail. I don't want to say how did this change you, but 
what did it do to you? What did it, did it spark any sort of epiphany? Did you come to a different understanding than when you started? What happened as you spent so much time? No, I, I, knew, I knew this story 30 years, 40 years ago. But you certainly didn't know it in this level of detail. Um, the details are, and that's, the, that's like the great dichotomy of schooling in a lot of settings. The details are, are kind of irrelevant. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter what it, whether his name was John Smith or John Jones or Larry David or Larry Smith, uh, that they were 30 or that they were 20. Mm-hmm. The thing that ultimately changes the world is the act. And because of the family I grew up in, I was very much aware of the act of what happened and why it happened. And I saw little slivers of that. I had slivers of what my parents had to grow up with. I didn't have to deal with what they had to deal with. I didn't have to sit in the, in, in the back of a bus under a, in a little gated section called colored only. I didn't have to go to the back ends of restaurants. I didn't have to deal with any of that. But when I was integrating my elementary school, my father, who was not like a, he's a firebrand intellectually, but not emotionally. He, he was never that, not, that was my mother's job to lose her mind. He didn't lose his mind. He kept his cool. And he said, when you go to school, always look them in the eye, no matter what. And uh, I always thought that was strange at first. I was like, okay, when don't, when don't I look people in the eye? But I wasn't really aware of the fact that when my father was my age, you could not look a white person in the eye without repercussions. Mm-hmm. So I went to the school, and there was one particular teacher, my fourth grade teacher. She used to get very upset and say, quit looking at me. And you know, I'm in fourth grade. I didn't really understand. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? And she was really, I mean, you really put her out. And then as I got older, I remembered that. And I said, wow, okay, now I get why my dad told me that. And you can still go places in small towns in South Carolina, for instance, and still still see some of the leftover effects yes. of 350 years of that kind of processing. Mm-hmm. And there are people who are not fond of me when I walk in places in the South, you know, not cities, but in small places with shoulders broad, looking them in the eye, and you can tell they're not digging it. But we now live in a time where there's very little they can do about it. They can just be pissed off. But back in the 20s, there were remedies which were used very, very often to solve these problems for uppity Negroes like me. So I knew all these stories. I mean, it's not like I, I was just proud of the fact that it was so well done. That in a lot of ways it was dispassionate because when you allow your passion to get the better of you, then you wind up the documentary just becomes a hand wringing, right? Or an after school special, right? Yeah, you know, these people are horrible and evil and should be destroyed, and and they just kind of said this is what happened, mm-hmm. and they they the editing was brilliant and they used all four historians to tell the story. And they told the story dealing strictly with the facts on the ground, not with how they felt about the facts or, or that technique they use. You know, well, when they first landed here, what they must have thought was like, <laughs> you don't know what they must have thought. Right. You don't know what they were feeling. So they say, what do you think they were feeling? And 
I think they just said, well, who cares what they were feeling? This is what they did. Yeah. This was it. These are the facts on the ground. Dispassionate is a good word. And to that end, it doesn't end particularly, hopefully. I don't see that reparations are coming for these families. I don't know if reparations are the solution. I know there's some interesting things afoot uh, in other parts of the country where people are looking at, you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing. There's a specific kind of insurance that has the rules of the insurance have stayed the same and it has to do with property. Mm -hmm. And if property is illegally appropriated, then insurance companies will be liable for amounts that are decided on years of improper such and such. I I mean, there may be ways to get this done, but I think I think that there is progress because there were three of these documentaries made that came out this year. I thought ours was the better of the documentaries because of the storytelling and uh, the amount of conviction that the directors had and help music helping to tell the story rather than just being a background sound. Mm-hmm. But this story is 100 years old, and people are just hearing about it now. That's a, that's a clear definition of progress, that we're sitting here talking about it. We, we're not talking about it in the 1980s. We're, not talking about, we're talking about it right now. There's a lot of things that are happening. And, I mean, I guess because of video games and McDonald's and things, you know, you get a hamburger, you get it in a minute and a half. We want all of these things to happen now. And everybody says, George Floyd, you know, George Floyd. This was the the flashpoint. Well, there were thousands of flashpoints along the way. You know, Byron D. LeBeck with shot Mega Evers in the back in the 60s for daring to register people to vote. Everybody knew he did it, and he basically lived his life for an additional 50 years. The three men that killed Emmett Till, nothing happened to them. They died. It's free men. I mean, so there's this weight of all of this stuff. And we're at this interesting time where the dam is finally starting to break. So there might not be immediate relief for the families of the victims in Tulsa, but there's a sort of emotional relief that is occurring across the country for all of these acts. And there will be more of these stories coming out. I'm certain of it. There will be more of these stories coming out. And the historical reckoning to me, has a lot more importance to the history of the nation and the healing of the nation than financial remuneration in the end. This is a a story told well, definitely bolstered by your music, commendable effort on everyone's part. I urge everyone to see it. Tulsa Burning, the 1921 Race Massacre, available at the History Channel, and I imagine we'll be able to get it elsewhere soon. Branford, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure, Ben. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard McCoy Tyner performing Satin Doll from his album Night of Ballads and Blues on Impulse. 
We also heard excerpts from Branford Marsalis's Emmy-nominated score for the History Channel's documentary, Tulsa Burning, the 1921 Race Massacre. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard, or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Thank you for listening.